Hello and welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute, where we offer a skeptical take on U.S. foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Emma Ashford. And I'm Trevor Thrall. We spent a lot of time on Power Problems talking about the rise of China and the rise and fall of great powers. But here in Washington, the conversation increasingly centers around which historical era the current situation most resembles and which warmed over foreign policy strategy we should adopt as a result. Is the rise of China prompting a new Cold War? Are we headed back into the 1930s or perhaps the pre-World War I era? Should the US adopt containment, appeasement, perhaps even reconsider the spread of globalization? All of this analogizing is an easy way to understand the world, but it's probably not giving us any easy answers about how the global order will evolve and change in coming decades. So today we're joined by Ali Wine, a policy analyst at the Rand Corporation, whose recent articles challenge the notion that the past is necessarily a good indicator of where we're going. He's a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council and a term member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. As always, we're going to start with a quick discussion of recent news. Um, and we might as well start with the decline of great powers, right? And we'll talk about Brexit. Um, by the time this episode posts, we'll be only a few days away from the new deadline for Britain to leave the European Union with no deal. Um, frustrated by Prime Minister Theresa May, Parliament wrested control of the process from her and then proved completely unable to do anything with it. It really just seems as if Britain has no idea what it wants from Brexit. And, and to be frank, that we're headed for a no deal exit here. Any thoughts? I guess one of the things that doesn't get discussed a lot, at least in my cursory reading of this complete mess, um, is this is one of those cases, I, I feel like the U.S., um, form of democracy kind of gets a bad rap in the last five or 10 years as being the sort of the pre-modern version of democracy. But this shows you the weakness of the parliamentary system. This is this is, this is is exactly what we don't have to worry about for good or for ill, I suppose. But man, what, you know, the whatever those, what were those, those indicative votes that they took? So basically said, do you want to do this? They voted no. Do you want to do the opposite? No. Do you want to do a third? No. Nothing. We don't want to do anything. So I know they're stuck. What could they possibly do? Is there an option left? Well, and I, I think that your your point, it, it brings to mind this quip that's allegedly attributed to Yogi Berra. He said, if you don't know where you're going, any path will get you there. And it seems to me that if you look at the precipitating referendum from a few years ago, it seems that there was a lot of emotion behind it, a lot of fervor behind it, but there wasn't necessarily a clear sense of what consequences might result, uh, where those consequences would leave you know, Britain vis-a-vis, not only vis-a-vis the European Union, but also uh, Britain's position in world affairs. And so it, it it's a sad reminder. Uh, it's a sad reminder that if you, uh, if you prioritize fervor, emotion, and public sentiment over a considered judgment of uh, paths and outcomes and consequences, that you might end up with some unintended, unintended outcomes. Yeah, you know, I think there's a pretty good argument to be made, actually, that David Cameron will go down in history as one of the worst prime ministers in British history. And it's because he basically didn't think through any of the implications mm. and allowed a referendum both on Scottish independence, and that one did turn out okay, but but also on Brexit. And he just didn't think it would be a problem. And suddenly, you're right, people voted on emotion. And here we are. And in response to sort of your question, Trevor, um, I mean, obviously, I've been following this pretty closely because I, I'm also British, and that's so it's kind of a concern for me. Um, at this point, it's basically no deal or 
maybe revoking Article 50, but chances are it's no deal. I mean, Parliament has basically shown through those indicative votes that there is no majority that can pass and certainly no majority that can pass anything that the government will actually approve and send forward for royal assent. So, I mean, we're stuck. And so it's really fascinating because you realize that voting to leave was was a vote against something but it wasn't a vote for anything. And that's, I think, the struggle, that Britain has no positive vision of where to go next. All it knows is what it doesn't want. And that seems like a, a terrible place to be as a country. It, it's, I think it's, it's such an important point because if you define yourself principally, if not exclusively, in opposition to something, you can perhaps rally public sentiment, but you can only get so far because the question then becomes, okay, you have you've overturned the existing order, at least interim mission accomplished, but then what is it that we stand for? Uh, what what constructive policies do we offer? What position do we hope to achieve in world affairs? And it seems that none of those questions were given the, the, the due attention or considered judgment that they deserved. Well, perhaps that's a good segue uh, into the Trump administration's Iran policy, which shares a lot of similarities there, right? It's basically, it's uh, against something and they very much know what they're opposed to. They don't really know what they they want out of it. Um, so the situation basically is Iran has been hit by heavy flooding, um, natural disaster, killed a bunch of people, made a bunch more homeless. Um, but unlike previous natural disasters, humanitarian aid has been really slow to materialize, apparently from fears that the Trump administration will sanction people that actually send aid. Um, I mean, I feel like this suggests we should be having a better conversation about sanctions and humanitarian impacts. And this, frankly, is a terrible situation. I think that there was an article, there was an op-ed in the Washington Post the other day by by David Cohen, and it, it really, really hit the mark. He said that you know, sanctions have in, in U.S. foreign policy, they have almost assumed the status of this kind of this magical elixir that you apply sanctions, they achieve desired foreign policy outcomes. But I think if you look at the record of, of saying, and I, I certainly, uh, sanctions are certainly not my wheelhouse, but my cursory reading of Daniel Dresner or other scholars of sanctions is that they very rarely work in achieving foreign policy outcomes in and of themselves. To the extent that they do work, they have to be applied in conjunction with other instruments of power. They have to be enforced multilaterally over a durable basis. And if you, and again, it goes to, to what you were just saying, Emma, now that what is our ultimate objective uh, with imposition of sanctions? If is it to bring Iran to the negotiating table? Is it perhaps even intended for regime change? My concern with the imposition of sanctions is that uh, it's going to be very difficult to get the Iranians to come back to the negotiating table. I think it's going to be very difficult to get the remainder of the P5 plus one countries back to the table because just getting to the JCPOA, it was a grueling process. And do we really... And, and I suspect that even for you know even for countries that are that are wary of Iran's pretensions in the region, do they really want to go through another exhaustive process to lead to a deal that may not even be better, however we define better in the context of, of diplomacy? Yeah, perhaps the, the most disturbing part is um, there's been a couple of uh, op-ed pieces over the last few weeks, all of which have argued that the sanctions are, are working. That, that is, you know, great that the Trump administration's Iran policy is working. And if you actually sort of read down and read between the lines, what's working is that it's hurting the Iranian economy, that it's hurting the Iranian people. Um, and they just never seem to consider the, the fundamental question of sanctions, which is how does that translate into policy? Yeah. And I, I think here, I think what, what an important question to answer, which I, I don't know the answer to, is what are the real intentions of the of the Trump administration, is it really to get a better nuclear deal? 
Increasingly, I think the answer to that is no, or at least that's not the main thing anymore. The main thing is to keep Iran weak or to weaken Iran. And in that case, you know, pain through economic means it doesn't have to have an endpoint other than pain because it keeps them weak and distracted from meddling throughout the Middle East. And in fact, I was reading the Brett Stevens piece in the Post, Emma, which you alluded to there, where he goes, wow, you know, this has actually been genius. Trump's, you know, pulling out and is really working. And, and there was a passage near the end where he said, and this is really cutting down in Iran's, you know, uh, funding of other bad things. And I was like, wait a minute, if you replace, and I, I'm not trying to be anti-American here, people don't, don't at me, but if you just replace the word Iran with the word United States, everything that we are complaining about Iran doing in the Middle East to other people through other groups, funding other groups, every one of those things is something the United States is doing right now in more places than Iran is doing. And, and Iran's not doing it for any more nefarious reason than we are, as far as I can. They want influence in the region. We want influence in the region. I mean, so whatever. But We're a great power. It's okay for right, great it's, powers, it's right. right? We're supposed to do that because we're America. You know, like, ah, this is really aggravating. So to me, the natural disaster happens. Whether you're sanctioning the country or not, you help the people. You're not trying to hurt the people, right? For, I mean, this is, ah, it's, to me, it's like evil. I almost don't want to open up our third news topic because it's just more depressing. Um, but basically, Israel uh, seems on the verge of conflict, perhaps going into the Gaza Strip again in the run-up to what has proven to be a very contentious Israeli election. Netanyahu's facing corruption charges. He's, um, I don't want to say increasingly unpopular because he still has a pretty good base of support, but he's he's struggling for this election. So all of this is coming together in a, a very disturbing way. Um, but from our point of view, I'm particularly interested in the Trump administration's reaction to all of this because they seem pretty determined to just throw fuel on the fire here. Well, there's right now I mean, a pretty significant reversal of, of longstanding U.S. policy. If you look at the uh, you know, the movement of the the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem, if you look at the, the Trump administration's policy on uh, Israeli uh, or support for Israeli annexation of the, the the Golan Heights, and so there are a number of departures that they have strengthened the relationship between the Trump administration and the Netanyahu administration, but they don't necessarily have widespread support uh, among even longstanding Europe, uh, uh, longstanding American partners and allies. And so the question is, do these unilateral moves by the Trump administration do they, while cementing the U.S. Israel relationship? Uh, what impact, if any, will they have on these moves? Will they have on our relationships in in Europe and on our broader ability to com conduct diplomacy in the Middle East? You know, actually, I think there's a, a different question there too, though, is which is you said we're cementing the sort of the Trump Netanyahu relationship. Then you said the U.S. Israel relationship. If Netanyahu loses, mm. will the U.S. relationship with Israel be the same? I, I don't think it will. Is is my sort of take on Agreed. this? Agreed. Yeah, I think you're right about that. I'm, I, and I think, you know, it's um, obviously super troubling and depressing in many regards. But I think what's sort of from a U.S. domestic politics side, what's interesting is that, you know, how people in the United States think about Israel has has evolved slowly um, over decades. You know, during the Cold War, Israel took on a very different sort of sort of role in U.S. domestic politics than it does today. It's less important, I think, in general, uh, the Israeli Palestinian peace process is less important than it was in the 1980s for people to resolve. I mean, the idea that we're going to step, every president has to say they're going to create peace, but no one cares anymore if they do. And it's not front page news much anymore. But, but what has happened is that Democrats are now, and I think you've seen this in the news recently, 
all the Democratic candidates for president now are kind of whiffy on Israel support. It's now an open question on the Democratic side whether full support for Israel is a thing or not. And maybe we're back in the wrong side. And I think Netanyahu has been the poster child for Israel going down a dark, dark path, settlements, all this sort of stuff. The corruption and buddying up with Trump is literally the worst thing Israel could do in terms of keeping strength in U.S lobbying sort of in domestic politics, they're going to break the Democratic Party's support for Israel. If, if Any more of this sort of stuff that they're doing in Gaza, they could, they could really harm their chances with their most important ally. I think that's a bad move on Israel's part. Seems like that's the story of the last couple of years is uh, America's traditional Middle Eastern allies just really screwing up the domestic politics over here. So, well, with that said, let's move on to our main topic of the day. Um, and this is a topic we have debated a lot on this podcast previously. Um, mostly, however, we've taken the point of view of sort of the academic debates over the rise and fall of great powers um, and great power politics. And I think it might be helpful if we start our discussion here by talking a little about how policy people in D.C. view this. You know, how does the blob think about great power competition, for, for lack of a better way to put it. Well, even just, just beginning with that term, so great power competition, as, as we were just discussing earlier, I would say it is um, it is certainly among the animating constructs, or the constructs that animate the U.S. foreign policy establishment, if not the central construct. And I, I would say that the the renewed focus on great power competition, it seems to me to be rooted in two Two judgments. The first is that the United States has been preoccupied with counterterrorism for too long, particularly in the Middle East. Uh, if you look at um, President Trump's statements, if you look at the national security strategy, the national defense strategy, they say that while counterterrorism will remain a very important priority for the United States, that it has been usurped in importance or, or overtaken in importance by the return of interstate competition. So that's one judgment. And I think that the second judgment informing this renewed focus on great power competition among the, the policy establishment is that some of the assumptions that undergirded this kind of post-Cold War triumphalism have proved to be, if not completely false, have proved to be somewhat, proven to be somewhat suspect. So in the immediate aftermath of the Cold War, there was a, I think, a sense, maybe not a universal sense in the establishment, but a pervasive sense that democracy and capitalism, if not inexorably resurgent, were confidently ascendant. And we're now seeing, uh, we're seeing some pushback on globalization. We're seeing uh, some resurgence of authoritarian rule. Uh, and there are major questions about uh, democracy, the sustainability of democracy, the outcomes that democracy is producing. So, so some of our assumptions have been challenged. Um, and while I understand, I mean, on the surface, on the surface, the rationale for thinking about great power competition seems self-evident. So you look at you look at China's uh, a resurgent China. You look at a revanchist Russia. So it makes sense to focus more on competition. But I have a few con I have a few concerns that I tried to lay out in in one of the national interest articles that I shared with you earlier, and, and I, I tried to break those concerns down or distill them down into four questions. Oh, oh, go ahead. Were you gonna? No, no. Oh. I just I I think. Um... The, the point that you're you're making about competition is an interesting one because I think it's not just the sort of – the foreign policy establishment here in D.C. I think views this a lot in terms of that sort of democracy and capitalism and all this uh, stuff. But even the administration, what we saw in the national security strategy was very much um, the authors of that, and I think Nadia Shadlow in particular, trying to blend that sort of establishment position with Trump's own more sort of hostility to other countries approach 
approach. And you come out with something that basically says, we're in competition with Russia and China. Some of it's about trade. Some of it's maybe about military stuff. Um, but they never really define why we're in competition or, or really, frankly, what we're in competition over other than that trade question. And, and this and it was actually, it's exactly this question, Emma, that you just posed that that I that has been increasingly concerning to me because the more that I I feel that there's a, a growing discrepancy between the the traction that this construct of great power competition has gained in the establishment and our our delimitation of certain boundaries around the construct. So, for example, who is America's principal competitor? If you look at the NSS and the NDS, they I don't know if they do if they do so wittingly, but they often will refer to China and Russia in immediate juxtaposition. But China and Russia are now it's true. China and Russia both challenge U.S. national interests. China and Russia both challenge the post-war order, but they do so in very different ways. They have very different strategies. They have very different material capacities. They have, I would say, different strategic objectives. And so to me, saying that we are in great power competition simultaneously with China and Russia and juxtaposing them so immediately, it tends to, um, I, I think it glosses over some important granularities. And then again, to your point, Emma, over what exactly are we competing? And if you take great power competition in the extreme, well, there is infinite competition. You could, comp you could in theory, attempt to compete with China and Russia in every functional domain, in every geographical theater, but even for a country of surpassing power and influence, um, I think that the United States, because it is uh, so powerful and so influential, it it likes to think that it can ally the necessity for choice and the the necessity for strategic trade-offs. But at a certain point, if you don't if you don't circumscribe great power competition, even a country of surpassing influence such as the United States will ineluctably succumb to strategic disorientation and then exhaustion. What is our strategic What is our ultimate strategic objective with Great power competition. Uh, I mentioned this this quip when we were talking earlier that Yogi Berra says something to the effect of, "If you don't know where you're going, any path will get you there." And I fear that we haven't really defined an end state for great power competition. We are focusing more on competition as a, competition is a means; it's an instrument. Um, and so, well, why, why don't I leave it there? But I, it's suffice it to say that I, I think that we need to have a more granular discussion about that construct. Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, when you're dealing with graduate students writing papers, the first thing you want them to do is is operationalize their variables and and tell you how they're going to measure them. And, and you know, in politics, it pays um, to not be too certain in public because you might be held to things. And so I think there's good political reasons why leaders sometimes don't want to be super clear, but at the same time, analysts don't have that luxury. They, they need to be crystal clear. What are we competing for? Because otherwise, I can't buy the right tools to do it. So I, I'm with you. This is a really important conversation. Yeah. So, I mean, I think this actually leads into you. You have another article that you published recently, and these are all in the show notes, by the way, if, if you're interested in going looking them up at home. Uh, but you made this argument that I found really interesting, which was that um, we are basically analogizing um, our, our approach to great power competition right now. So whether it's, you know, we're in a new Cold War with China, which I find funny because as a Russia specialist, I remember we were in a new Cold War with China, like five, uh, sorry, with Russia, like five years ago. <laughs> um, so new Cold War, or maybe it's the 1930s and all, you know, and we're all dealing with some sort of post-war situation. Maybe it's like the 1900s or the 1910s and it's this period of globalization that ends up collapsing. and But the point that you're basically making is that none of those really maps particularly well up to the current situation. And 
And and I hasten to say that since I since the article to which you you refer is an article that, as you said, it's 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 critical of uh, these these two analogies that, that seem to be quite in vogue uh, in in establishment discourse today. I hasten to note that the recourse to analogy is a perfectly understandable one, and and leaving aside even the realm of geopolitics, just in our day to day lives, when we encounter uncharted territory, when we un- encounter unfamiliar situations, uh, we do sort of mine our mine our past to see if, if there are illuminating lessons, if there are case studies that we can take to help us to help us navigate uh, uncertain waters. So I, I should say that the recourse to analogy is is understandable. And analogies, they can be illuminating. Uh, but as as you know, as Ernie May and Dick Newstead talk uh, talk in uh, their book Thinking in Time, um, analogies in order to be illuminating, they have to be applied uh, with granular context. They have to be applied with a clear eye and you have to note the limitations as well as the similarities. And so uh, so while the impulse is understandable, I, I worry a lot about those those two particular analogies. And so take and I'll take each in turn the the 1930s and and the Cold War or, or new Cold War. So the concern about a reversion to the 1930s or some kind of sort of 1930s redux, it seems to me that there are probably three three animating three animating concerns. So the first is that we see a resurgence of authoritarianism and democracies coming under growing strain. And I don't dispute those judgments, but I think it's important, again, to contextualize them. In the interwar period, uh, authoritarian states were very confidently ascendant. There were very few electoral democracies. And Franklin Roosevelt was extremely concerned. And and he viewed this challenge or this competition between authoritarianism and democracy in very existential terms. Today, it's true. I mean, if you look at surveys that have been done by Freedom House and other organizations, we have seen some, depending on who you ask, some democratic recession or backsliding, maybe even a democratic plateau. But we now have on the order of 120 electoral democracies. So even if democracy is backsliding or in recession, it's receding from a far higher baseline than it was during uh, the interwar period. And another another important point that I would make, uh, or a point that I would make on this proposition is that in the 1930s, if you look at fascism, if you look at Nazism, if you look at other isms, um, they derived a lot of momentum from the Great Depression. And so the Great Depression happens, democracies are caught flat-footed, and proponents of various authoritarianisms said, look, um, we have insights into the cultivation of economic prosperity and domestic order that democracies don't. Sure, we had a global financial crisis in 2008, 2009. It was a major shock to the system, but it led to criticism of democracies, uh, but it but criticism of democracy doesn't automatically translate into support for authoritarian regimes. And in, in other words, I can be very critical of democracies. I can say that they aren't functioning as well as they should be, and they aren't achieving the outcomes that they should be. And I think that we're seeing a lot of that in in the United States and in Western Europe. But that criticism doesn't mean that I believe that authoritarianism is necessarily the solution. Um, so that's that's one concern. Though at this point, I think I would I would take anything for Brexit at this point. So I'll be honest. I'm not sure that I, I don't think the Queen should just step in and be like, I'm ruling again. You're right. I, I, I'm with you. I'm with you. Um, so that that's that's one concern. I think the second concern that leads people to think that we're reverting back to the 1930s, uh, there's a fear of deglobalization. And so if you look, there are some concerning economic trends. So if you look at uh, trends in cross-border capital flows, global foreign direct investment, the value of cross-border mergers and acquisitions, those trends are going in, in a concerning direction. But there are other indicators that are going in, in, still going in a favorable direction. Uh, if you look at net capital inflows into emerging, emerging countries, those are rebounding. 
Uh, if you look at an off-sited measure of globalization, which is the ratio between the growth rate of global merchandise trade and the uh, growth rate of uh, real gross world product, uh, that ratio had been declining in the immediate aftermath of the financial crisis, but it's rebounding. We see progress on a number of bilateral trade deals, a number of multilateral trade deals. And so there are signs that that globalization is, is proceeding apace, at least in certain ways. Um, and then the last the last point that I would make about why I think that the 1930s analogy is problematic is that in the 1930s, so we talk a lot about how today's post-war order is under duress, and it's it's kind of the, the, the axiomatic conclusion. Uh, it's under duress from within and without. But there is at least an order to defend. In the 1930s, there really wasn't any order of which to speak. And you had you had militant authoritarian uh, systems or countries such as Japan and Germany that were really riding roughshod and engaging in territorial aggression. And they were riding roughshod over a deglobalizing or deglobalized system. So there really wasn't any order of which to speak. And also in the, today, even if you believe, and I, as I do, that America is in relative decline, it still remains the world's preeminent power. In the 1930s, even though the United States commanded the world's largest economy, it really wasn't a superpower. It was still quite parochial in its foreign policy outlook. So, so those are three differences. And 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 I, and I and I should stipulate. I know I've been I've been going on for some time, but I, I should stipulate. I'm not trying to diminish the the magnitude of the challenges that that U.S. power and influence confront. I'm not trying to diminish the the seriousness of the challenges to the international system. I'm just trying to contextualize them a little more. Yeah. So I mean, so I think the 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 parallels with the 1930s are pretty obvious, right? But you're right that there are all these little differences that make it not quite the same situation. And I think if we move forward and we talk about the new Cold War framing, it's a very similar thing. Um, there's a strong sort of inclination to see that China's rise is going to put us into a bipolar system. Not clear that that's actually the case. Um, there's a strong inclination, I think, to see China's authoritarianism and to some extent Russia's authoritarianism as an ideological challenge. I'm not sure that it is an ideological challenge in the way the Soviet Union was. So there's all these things that on the surface, again, look very similar, but but you go just one step deeper, they they're perhaps not. Exactly. And and this is what and this is really what I was trying to get in the article is that we need to go beyond the kind of the self-evident surface similarities between that these analogies yield and we need to engage in more systematic reflection. And so at least when I think of the, when I think of when I hear the phrase new Cold War and I, I think back to the Cold War, in the Cold War, we were faced with an adversary. First of all, we were faced with an unalloyed adversary. And today, uh, you know, Russia is, is certainly not you know, friendly with us and China is becoming more competitive. But it's not clear to me that China and Russia are pure antagonists in the way that the Soviet Union was. But we were confronting an unalloyed antagonist that harbored no hope of peaceful coexistence, long-term coexistence with the United States. It had pretensions to a universal ideology. It uh, was uh, it was fomenting revolution, violent revolution across the world. It was employing proxy warfare, client states, and territorial aggression in the service of its objectives. So that comp and of course uh, there was uh, the threat of mutually assured destruction. I mean, the Soviet Union and the United States, they had tens of thousands of nuclear weapons trained at one another. And, you know, when my parents were growing up, they were learning how to do duck and cover drills. And today, when I look at China and Russia, yes, they are increasingly competitive with the United States, but in different ways. 
And the way that I would sort of distill the the difference between China and Russia, I see I see Russia as being opportunity. I see Russia as a declining power that is opportunistically obstructive. So I don't necessarily, if you look at its principal lines of effort, whether it's propping up Assad, whether it's destabilizing democracies or conducting disinformation operations or hiving off territory and it's near abroad, there isn't necessarily a grand strategic arc connecting those efforts that will seek to advance uh, Russian power, but you see a consistent effort to destabilize. So I look at Russia as trying to gain influence through opportunistic obstruction. With the Chinese, I see a resurgent power with an increasingly global footprint that has benefited significantly from integrating itself into the post-war system, and I see it as being selectively revisionist. Um, and on the, and I should say with the, the Chinese, I actually think that the analogy that we're in a new Cold War with the Chinese, it's simultaneously and somewhat paradoxically, it both understates the challenge and it overstates the challenge. It understates the challenge because prior to China, I was reading a I was reading a statistic somewhere I think by Andy Krepinevich uh, at at CSBA, and he said that prior to China, the United States had never competed with any country that had more than forty percent, roughly forty percent of America's uh, gross domestic product. China obviously is is well beyond that threshold, and so the new Cold War analogy understates the magnitude of the Chinese economic challenge, but it overstates the challenge because again, China yes it's a nuclear power, but it doesn't have tens of thousands of nuclear weapons trained at the United States. It is not posing a frontal assault on the post-war order. It is. Uh, it's propping up certain elements of the post-war order. It's revising other elements. And then on the outside, it's building kind of a separate architecture. So yes, China and Russia are competitive in, in a range of ways. But I think that the new Cold War analogy uh, and, the, and the notion of containment, I think that they would actually lead us down a very counterproductive direction. You know, I think one of the more interesting things that emerges from the sort of thinking about it in this new Cold War analogy, right, is um, we sort of talk about Russia and China as they're both in competition with the U.S., they're both sort of threatening the U.S., um, but in the Cold War, during the Cold War, that isn't what our strategy was at all. We spent a lot of time working to basically hive the Chinese off from the Soviets, work with them so that we didn't face both powers at the same time. Um, and there's been a lot of concern in DC that Russia's moving closer to China, and yet everybody acted like Trump was insane when he said, oh, we should work with the Russians against the Chinese. It's kind of very strange that on the one hand, we're all accepting this analogy, but we're sort of saying, oh, both powers are so opposed to us, we could never figure out how to work with one against the other. Well, and it's it's interesting that, and I'm and I should say that I'm skeptical of I'm I'm skeptical of the uh, the long term likelihood of enlisting uh, kind of in a variant of of Nixonian diplomacy the likelihood of enlisting Russia in an effort uh, against China for I think for a couple of reasons I think I feel that in order for Russia and, th and this is I'm I'm just speculating here I mean we've we've seen that. Uh, uh, I'm very, very humble about prognostications, but my, but my speculation is that Russia would have to render at least two judgments in order to conclude that it would be prudent to uh, to join the United States in some effort to counterbalance China. I think the first conclusion it would have to render or, or, or reach is that the long-term strategic risks of an increasingly asymmetric relationship with China uh, will, in time, they'll outweigh the benefits. So that that's judgment one, and the second judgment is that. 
Russia would have to conclude, a, a Russia that's looking to, if not become as influential as it was in its sort of imperial days, but at least to restore some of its lost influence, Russia would have to conclude that the path to that partial restoration of influence would lie more in attempting to reintegrate into the Western order than in attempting to double down on its relationship with China. Thus far, I haven't seen, I haven't seen evidence that either of those propositions is correct. I think that while Russia harbors apprehensions about China, not only because of mutual mutual suspicions, historically rooted mutual suspicions. It worries about Chinese penetration of Russia's Far East. It worries about Chinese inroads in Central Asia. But I think that Russia recognizes that absent, uh, absent its relationship with China across a range of dimensions, its ability to portray itself and actually become or remain a great power is significantly diminished. So my, but, and, and to your point, um, I don't know that the United States can necessarily hive Russia off of China the other way around, but we can at least take and, – and I think that the Sino-Russian relationship will continue to mature, but there are at least steps that the United States can take so that we don't accelerate that momentum. Uh, and I would say that a dual containment strategy seems to me to probably be the surest way of accelerating uh, the momentum in Sino-Russian relations. Right now, if I look at the relationship between the two countries – I see an increasingly asymmetric relationship that is more and more lopsided economically in China's favor. And I see I see not so much an axis or an alliance of consequence as I do a partnership of convenience, but a strategy of dual containment would give China and Russia a very powerful shared impetus in pushing back against the United States. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. That is basically what you hear from Russian foreign policy specialists and people in Moscow these days is they'll say, you're forcing us to make a choice. We don't want to make a choice, but we will choose China if you force us. So, right, right, yeah, a little lighter on the gas there would be probably a good idea. I, I, I find it interesting just to just to loop back a little ways here, but um, I find it interesting to listen um, when people bring up these analogies, what their purpose in using the analogy is, because it's usually not to say. Uh, sort of at a general academic level, today is most like the 1930s. And um, they usually have some sort of specific purpose for for reaching for one versus the other analogy. And I think, um, uh, you know, the 1930s analogy, I think, tends to get brought up by the people who are mo more focused, obviously, on the trade issues. So people who are worried about Trump's protectionism, they, they'll reach back because they want to warn you about the dangers of, of protectionism. People who are uh, more worried about China than trade generally reach for the Cold War because they either want to avoid us behaving as if we are or they are ready to embrace that and they want to encourage us to realize that China is the next. I mean, it, so there's a lot of different reasons people bring these up. But I think, it, you know, it's a really valuable conversation to point out the limits of these analogies. I mean, an analogy is just a model and every model is imperfect, but it, it, the hope is that it's useful. And, but I really think the, the key to using analogies well, or one of them, is to restrict the, the scope of what you're asking the model to predict, or, or, right? And so, and so I think, you know, is the 1930s useful to remind you about the dangers? Sure, absolutely. That, that, I don't, that's still a useful lesson from the 1930s. How applicable is it today? I, I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's the generic lesson is still perfectly useful, but are we in a situation that looks much like the 1930s like that? No, I don't think so. Cold War-wise, I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, Number one, the 1930s and the isms thing, like that was before the the Nazis and the fascists and the communists all showed their hand, showed who they were and were defeated roundly in the sort of not only in the battlefield, but the court of much global opinion over decades. So I, I think the, the conversation that you have as a new 
populist or nationalist movement is very you're constrained a lot. The liberal international order might not be super ordered uh, or always perfectly international or perfectly liberal, but but I think you could say there is a liberal narrative order. And and that constrains people a lot. The language you can use now to become a globally influential player, even Russia and China have to sometimes speak in the language of liberal narrative because that's what works. And they often do. Of course they do. But I mean, and that, that I think, you know, people, you know, blast norms for being hard to measure and, and being BS and all that sort of stuff. But I mean, come on, they're, they're real. They influence all of us. And I think, I think we see that. So I, I think it's, the, you know, there's a lot of reasons to question how much today is like, yesterday. And then I think the other thing for China, you know, as you point out, I think there's this interesting kind of combo underestimate, overestimate. But I mean, when you compare Cold War 2.0 as it may or may not be emerging, I mean, uh, US NATO allies, I mean, first of all, there was no NATO. Second of all, the allies were all in uh, shambles and poor. Now they're rich, not in shambles, super well organized. I mean, China is facing a very different struggle, very, very uphill battle if it wants to dominate the world. I, I find that like ridiculous as a, a proposal. And yet people in D.C. seem to take that super seriously. Well, it's it's in, I mean, it, and if is it all right if I just dwell a little bit on the just the the Cold War analogy or the new Cold War analogy? I, and again, at the surface level, it, when you look at the the emergence or I shouldn't say the emergence, the the acceleration of competition between the United States and China in a number of domains. Uh, growing talk about a, a G2 world or a bipolar world. A again, at the surface level, the analogy seems compelling, but there are a number of important differences. I would say that the first is the United States and the Soviet Union, at least to the best of my knowledge, uh, and, and there are documents that are still being declassified, so we may in, in due course find out otherwise, but at least as far as I can tell, the United States and the Soviet Union had very little in the way of socioeconomic exchange, very little in the way of cultural exchanges. Uh, the Soviet Union was largely excluded and deliberately so from the U.S. Uh, constructed post-war order. Uh, China is, by contrast, China is, with the exception of the United States, has been the principal beneficiary of the U.S.-led post-war order. So it's deeply integrated, deeply dependent on the world economy. Uh, China and the United States have a two-way trading relationship that runs, I believe, above $600 billion. Um, and that it's a number It's a number that's actually on track to continue rising, albeit at a slower pace because of trade tensions, but still a very large two-way trading volume. Um, and I believe, according to the latest figures, that China accounts for roughly one-third of all international students who are enrolled at American uh, at American institutions of higher learning, and so so the first difference is that the United States and China enjoy a degree of economic interdependence and socioeconomic exchange that, was, that were more or less non-existent during the Cold War. I think another important difference is that, as I said earlier, um, while China is exporting certain elements of its ideology, and you, know, you, you look at, for example, you know ZTE is helping uh, helping. Uh, the governments in Venezuela and Zimbabwe to develop infrastructure that would help them monitor the, or surveil their citizens more closely. So in that way, it's exporting literally uh, sort of some of the infrastructure of its ideology. But it, it isn't. It doesn't evince a kind of missionary ideological zeal in the way that the Soviet Union did. Um, and then the last, and, and there are some other differences, but the last one that I would that I would note is that. Um, in the Cold War, it would have been inconceivable with the exception of explicitly non-aligned states such as India to say, we'll do some business with the United States and we'll then also do some business with the Soviet Union. Today, by contrast, uh, countries, uh, they want to benefit from U.S.-China competition. If you go to I mean, if you go to countries, whether it's China's neighbors, uh, if you go to countries in uh, Africa that are the, increasingly the beneficiaries of Chinese uh, development aid, if you go to countries in Latin America, 
the one notion that comes up again and again is we do not want to have to choose between the United States and China. Uh, and there's sort of the there's an old quip that, look, if if China builds, if in, in, let's say like in sub-Saharan Africa, if China builds a bridge, America can build a car that goes over that Chinese constructed bridge. So, so I think that's a critical difference. And the United States and China, if either of those countries, if either of those countries exhorts others to say you must choose between one or the other, I think it will see major strategic dividends to its opponent. Well, I think that's probably a good place to wrap it up for today because we're out of time. Um, so we really appreciate you joining us, Ali. Thanks so much. Um, Thank you. Thanks also to our producer, Cecil Sherman, and to you all for listening at home. If you like the show, please leave us a good review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. See you next time.